Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday night. I'm going to do a bio or history, whatever we're going to call it. It's a little bit different what I'm doing tonight. This has been sponsored by my good friend and uh, student, uh, Dr. Morris Freeman, or Dr. Mo, as he's known to all of his many patients out there in the Muncie-type area. And he's doing this in memory of Rabbi Uri Mendelbaum, who just passed away. I didn't know him myself. I knew his in-laws in Baltimore, but I didn't know him himself. And Morris here, Dr. Mo, sent me a, a nusach of dedication to the late Rabbi Mendelbaum, and I'm going to read it to you. Uh, quote, in memory of Rabbi Uri Mendelbaum, affectionately known as Raburi, the Manahel of the Philadelphia Yeshiva, I met Raburi many years ago. This is Dr. Friedman talking. I met Raburi many years ago, shortly before he came ill. I personally witnessed his unfathomable trials, unfathomable trials and tribulations as his incurable illness progressed. He showed the greatest mental and physical strength, no doubt from his deep amuna and iron will. This Amuna, along with his wife and large devoted family, is what allowed him to live long beyond what had been, predi- been predicted by medical opinion. Rabbi Mendelbaum will forever serve as an inspiration of great Kiddush Hashem to any and all that interacted or heard of him. Certainly in my life, Dr. Friedman writes, certainly in my life, personally, he is the prime example of a selfless Eved Hashem with a true year Shemayim. Thousands and thousands of people were helped and inspired by the good deeds of this truly righteous individual. I'm certain his wife and wonderful family would continue on in these great ways, unquote. That speaks for itself. That speaks for itself. can give you a little bit of an idea of what esteem he was held. Uh, I was, when Mo told me this the other day, Mars, so I was thinking who to talk about for, you know, today for Sunday. And I had somebody in mind. But then I read something on Shabbos which changed my mind. I'm going to share with you instead. And I would put it as one tiny aspect of uh, just gripped me. Let's call it uh, Hasidim and Litvox. Hasidim and Litvox. It's not what you expect. I read over Shabbos a book that I've had for two years, something like that. I can't even remember why I got it. And this was, but somebody told me that there's something involved with my father's town, Shavl, and that's why I did it. This is the memoirs of Rabbi Hirschsprung. Uh, many of us, I think, listening to this, will remember the late, great uh, Pentecost Hirschsprung from Montreal, the uh, tremendous Gon, as a very nice person as well, big tzaddik, uh, who, you know, did the pin test. He's from the Chachmi Lublin. He really was a student of uh, Mayor Shapiro. When he's super... You know, super photographic memory people. I remember his son was in Yeshiva in my time. He saw in uh, near Israel. And I just vaguely remember a little bit. <clears throat> used to come and just <laughs> shoot the bull, let's say, through Robert Rudiman. They went all over shots back and forth, up and down. You know, those, I hate people like that. They used to know everything, <laughs> you know, make the rest of us look dumb. Um, so he was one of these huge, huge Talmudic Chachamim. And I say, and, and as I understand, a very... Uh, very righteous person, but I'm the Javero, of all types, from, not from. So, that's all I know. And I know that it, he escaped in Shanghai, or not really Shanghai, he got through Japan, and he just beat the war. He got here in 41 in Canada, I think. That's how it was. So during most of the Holocaust, he was in Canada. Hear me out. Uh, however, I'm wrong. He actually spent a while in 39 and 40 under Hitler and under Stalin, which I wasn't so clear about. And in Canada in 1944, that's early on during the war, he wrote a memoir of his time dealing with Hitler and Stalin, with the Germans and the Soviets. I would call it 39 and 40. 
and and I was reading over Shabbos and it was a, a page turner. It was a very gripping because uh, he's a fantastic writer and somebody translated English. That's my point. The Yiddish it's about the Amritol, which means the veil of tears. So he translated English in veil of tears. <laughs> I was one and it's it's a, a like I say very very well written. It's translated from the Yiddish, but um, this is a rare case of somebody's giving a very frank uh, diary, not diary, but memoir. Right during the war, so Mamas was fresh memory, uh, and it's, and it goes without saying he's a tremendously from and all the rest of it, but going through hell, I would say the seven layers of hell, and then another seven, and he's writing very frankly, and it was just fascinating, and he ended up in my father's town, <laughs> that's a really catch of my imagination, and I would even say he's a brilliant writer. I'm put in other words, let's put aside the fact. They had a new call to Tarakul and all that. They had a Shas and Postkim. Of course. That's a set, you know, that's true. I'm talking that just as a memoir writer. It was very gripping. And it's called Veil of Tears. Uh, I'm surprised it wasn't published by the art school, but then I discovered why, as you'll see in a minute. And it's very fascinating because he tells it like it is from, you know, from a subjective point of view. And he was living, he's a Galtzianer, with the Galtzianer Yiddish. He went to Chachmi Lublin because he was Hasidish. That was meant to be a, you know, Mayor Shapiro. When he started Chachmi Lublin, he basically had the idea, if I can use the terminology of a Hasidic Volosian, <clears throat> something like that. They have all the pluses of the Litvish stuff plus the Hasidic. You understand? That was the ideal. And I know how he successful he was, but he was certainly successful in the case of his star pupils. And Robert Hirschman was famous for being a star pupil. He's born the same year as my mom. So he was born in 1912. And he died around 2000, maybe a little earlier. So that's who Rob Hirschman was. And I'm sure many people, especially if you're in Canada, you know better than I do. But here's the point I'm going to make. Uh, I'm not sure how many people read this. I doubt. Again, it's called Veil of Tears. The Veil of Tears. And uh, he's a galaxy honor. And for whatever reason, he wasn't married, I guess, when he was late 20s. There's this little town that came from Dukla. I know where that is. Dukla is a little town in, in Galicia, I would say almost in the east, eastern half, which really would be what we would call today Ukraine, but at that time was part of the Poland. If you don't understand the, the shifting maps, it's hard to follow his memoir. I do. I'm not sure how many readers will hop everything. But very briefly, before you read this, or if you were listening to what I'm saying, just Google a map, <clears throat> for example, of Europe in 1938. 38. And you'll see there was a big thing called Poland, Republic of Poland, which I think I mentioned this the other day with Hannah Wasserman, included what we call Poland today, <clears throat> plus <clears throat> a slice of the Ukraine and a slice of the Belarus, and frankly, a slice of Lithuania. The part, the slice of the Ukraine, was more or less what we call Lemberg area, Lvov, Lviv, that whole area. Right, all the way to Bells and past that to the border, Brody and so forth. Uh, so, uh, well, actually, not all, all. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> that's correct. Then um, north of that would be um, a slice of Ukraine, what we call, uh, and Belarus, a Pinsk or something, you know, that area. And north of that would be Vilna, okay? The Vilna district which included all the yeshivas, Vilna, Raden, and so forth. They ended up in Poland, even though there was a separate country called Lithuania that was formed after the First World War, and they wanted the Vilna district because they said it's ours historically, and the Poles said it's ours, and called the Olim Gvar. You know, the Poles grabbed it, and Lithuania couldn't do anything about it. So it was a bitter war, cold war, between the two countries in the 1920s and 30s. I'm mentioning this all for a reason. So our hero... Grew up in this area, Dukla, which, by the way, is a region in, in Galicia where the majority of the population was Jewish. I want you to think about what I said. There are many little towns and villages where rove of the population was Jewish. So you had Polacks, you had uh, Ukrainians, they had Jews. And, you know, depending where you were, they were in different percentages. Sometimes the Poles were in them. Actually, in eastern Galicia, the Poles were never in the, the rove. Either the Jews or the Ukrainians, the Ukrainians were the oppressed ones. And they hated the Jews because the Jews kissed up to the Pollocks because the Pollocks were, were the rulers. So it's that classic Gullus situation. 
where the Jews find themselves between a rock and a hammer. And unfortunately, had a bitter harvest, because when Hitler came into Ukraine, in the invasion of Soviet Union 41, the Ukrainians massacred the Jews, as I think everybody knows. And uh, they helped the Germans, and many of the guards in the, Ukra- in the concentration camp, the worst ones, were Ukrainians, etc., etc. Okay? Similar happened all the way up north in Lithuania, in Latvia, as they gave us. Now, our hero, therefore, lived in, in this area in Galicia, and very from the way he describes that everybody was Shomer Shabbos, even if it's that's an exaggeration, so say 97% was Shomer Shabbos. You see, that's huge. And Hasidish. Hasidish. And that means you're very isolationist and you're isolated. So they didn't know what's going on in the world. <clears throat> I see when he's writing. They hear there's tension between Poland. It's fascinating. Tension between Poland and Germany. Will there be war, not be war? They hock at the back of the base meadows as people do. This one says this theory, that one says that theory. Like the Gansi Kanakers, like they know what's going on in international affairs. Yesh Darshan like this, Yesh Darshan like that. Hitler doesn't mean it, he does mean it. Stalin, this, that, and the other. And Robert Hirschman says, I'm listening to this on the radio. And they say, what are you listening to radio for? Radio, shmedio, newspaper, newspaper. Mom's like today, you know, they just cut off from what's happening. And they paid the price. All right? In addition to that, they persuaded themselves that the Germans can't be that bad. Therefore, a lot of them didn't run away, and they paid the price. So he's there, and it's, by the way, it's a brilliant description of the chaos in Poland at the beginning of the war in September of 39, just before September, December 39. And, you know, and he wants to get to Palestine, but his parents won't let him go, leave home. It's a very human. All these things happen over and over again. Now, um, and he already was a great Talmud Chacham, his grandfather, the rabbi of the little town. And so forth. You can read it yourself. That's not the part that interests all. The, all of it's interesting. And then the Germans show up, and almost from day one or day two, they start with this sagism. You know, historians want to be technical. They'll say the Holocaust started a little bit later. They mean the systematic mass murder of the Jews. But even before that, when the Germans walked into Poland, I won't say systematic, but unsystematic, sadistic murder here and there, random, happened all the time. And you see it from here, and the Jews are utterly helpless, and the Germans are, uh, you know, totally absent any mercy, and unbelievable schmoes, unbelievable, and you see the terrible atrocities they did just offhandedly, you have to have a strong stomach for this, so the next town over where he was, not his town, they round up just for the heck of it, they round up all the Jews in the town, 600 in the square, men, women, and children, then they surround them with machine guns, and the Rav, the old man says, to, don't shoot them, shoot me. I'm the one who make them Jewish. Shoot me. And the Germans said, oh, because you said that, we're going to shoot you last. You're going to watch everybody else get killed first. Machine gun the men, the women, and the babies. And then comes you. And that's what they did. And when it was all over, they went to him with a bayonet and cut open his stomach and all the guts spilled out. That's what, you, that's what you're talking about if you want to know the truth. You know what I'm Maybe you can't stand to listen to the truth, but that's what it is. These kind of things happen. Yom of Alayla. And his parents say, don't go away. The Germans are going to change. They're going to get better tomorrow. I know this. This is all true. You know, as they say. The Jews persuaded themselves it can't be as bad as it seems. It can't be as bad as it seems, even as it was happening. Eventually, event, uh, events so occurred. I'm not going to go through the whole story. That's not my point here. And um, he had to get out of there. Uh, even his parents agreed. And he ran away to the Stalin part because <clears throat> the history was that when World War II started, it was with a German attack on the Republic of Poland. Uh, <clears throat> before the, Hitler started the attack, he cut a deal with Stalin called the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. And they said, we'll divide Poland. Basically, Germany will take two-thirds and Stalin will take one-third. That's what it boils down to. Okay. And Stalin liked the idea that I can get territory without having to fight. And although he tricked Hitler because Hitler attacked, and because he attacked, he was the aggressor. And that led England and France to declare war on Germany in order because he attacked Poland. I hope I haven't lost you. And that law started the Second World War. And Hitler was sure that Stalin would attack at the same time. And then England and France would be, be too scared, and he was right, too scared to attack Nazi Germany and Communist Russia. There's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a gargantuan 
mammoth power, they wouldn't take him on. But Stalin was very sneaky, screwed Hitler, and Hitler attacked first, and Stalin didn't attack for two weeks. So meanwhile, England and France declared war in Germany, not on Russia. And then after that happened, look, look what a Hitler, how clever he was. And then Stalin came in and took over his chalet, like two weeks later, something like that. And they didn't declare war on Stalin. This is of the hugest consequences because Hitler was sure. First of all, he didn't like the fact that Stalin cheated him, but okay, they're all cheating each other. And second of all, just give me a little background. And second of all, Hitler persuaded himself, okay, England and France declared war on me, but it won't last too long. Eventually, they'll have to give in and just make peace with me on one basis or another. And he was willing to be generous. He didn't realize that England especially, um, the way things turned out, was never going to make peace with him. And when it seemed like they might, the British got rid of the Prime Minister Chamberlain put in Churchill. And Churchill's first speech was, it says, no peace with Hitler, zero. No matter what. No peace with Hitler. We will not parley, he said with that man. Right? So, that means that Hitler's goose was cooked. Although, it took a long time and millions and zillions of killed to accomplish that. And Stalin got away with everything. So if you're Jewish, if you're in the two-thirds of Poland that fell under Germany, if the one-third that fell under Stalin, they're not out to kill you, but they are out to de-Judaize you. But this is a whole partial by itself. There's a very good book by Professor Dove Levin, if I remember correctly, called The Lesser of Two Evils. Maybe I've mentioned it. It's translated in English by the Jewish Public Society years ago. And he goes into detail about Stalin's occupation of these territories. But right away it was Andrew Musi. I know there was a huge confusion. And at the time that Rabbi Hirschbung ran away there, he crossed a river, ruined his shoes, almost drowned. People don't realize how tough it was. There was a young guy who barely made it to the other side because he couldn't cross with the regular bridge because the guards were there. And from then on he didn't have shoes. Like for months and months, I want you to think about that. The shoes were falling apart in the middle of the Eastern European winter. It's quite a story. Freezing every day. I, I, I couldn't handle it. You know, what people had to go through. And of course, there's a food shortage on the Soviet side. It always is there. <laughs> he had a good story. I've heard various variations of that. He said he had a friend who believed in communism or something. And he ran away to Russia. But later he came back. And they said, why'd you come back? You know, he said, because of the drit the coal. Because of the third coal. He said, what's the third call? He said, Kol Nidre, Kol Chamira, and the Kol Chaz. Kol Nidre, you fast one day a year. Kol Chamira, you fast from Chamas eight days a year. The Kol Chaz is the Stalinist collective farm. You fast all year. <laughs> now, he's disillusioned when he saw the falseness of the communist propaganda versus the reality. But the reality is more complicated than that. Many Jews actually got jobs with the Soviet occupation. They had to give up your Yiddishkeit. And he, you know, you see, he goes to Lemberg and this place and that place, and um, he's having all these adventures. And just to get in bread, you stand in line for 10 hours, and a train's supposed to come at 7, the train comes like at, you know, 2 in the afternoon. This is how it worked under Russia. Um, that's what it was. And all during this, you know, it's a tremendous, what's the right word? There's a tremendous depressive, you get into depression. You know, you want to give up. And he says, now this is why the art school, in my opinion, that's probably why the family didn't give it to the art school to do, because otherwise, you'd think the great gone Rob Hirschsprung, you know, they do one of his art school bios. They're translated. But he says that there were times he wanted to commit suicide, which I completely understand. And I didn't do it. It's a from guy. But he's being very honest. None of us have the slightest idea what it's like to go through all that suffering and freezing and starving, and everywhere Hitler is triumphant, everywhere Stalin is triumphant, Yiddishkeit has been trampled and destroyed, and you see so many people dying and suffering all around you. You know, it's 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 a, like a Hobbes, a war of, you know, short, brutal, and everybody against everybody. You can understand. Now you see an art school book, they can't have a rabbi say, oh, I saw about suicide. Plus, I can see from reading the book, the Rabbi Hirschman, like people in Galicia, I did a, a a series on this. I think now it's on podcast. Uh, 
the Hasidim were very conservative, you know, religiously conservative, to a super extent. And therefore, in, in Galicia, um, they were against day schools. Didn't that sound weird? So they'd rather keep the old system of a cheder. <clears throat> and if Poland makes you go to public school, they'd rather you go to Polish public school. But you keep the cheder, you learn before and after. So let's say public school is, I don't know, 7.30 to 12 or 1. That's r- what it was roughly. So the kids would get up real early in Darwin. And then when you come back from 1 to 9, <laughs> you learn a cheder. They, they like that system better. So as a result, you have the irony of somebody like Robert Hirschman, who is super from, again, he knew Shas by the time he's, I don't know, 12, 15, you know, they have all these stories about him, and they're true. Uh, I mean, he was able, you know. And yet, I see he knows Polish, he learned Polish, he learned German, I think maybe Latin. He read Karl Marx, that's right. When he's in the Russian zone, he says, oh, he's a Marxist, just minus the religious part. He said, no, it's a <laughs> there's no such thing as Palgina de Bura. If you're a Marxist, you have to be macabre the religious part also, which means atheism. And he says, why? You know, but he was, who's read Marx? You know, that means he was swept up like everybody else, even if you're Hasidic, and even if you know Shas, like he did, that you can do the pin trick and all the rest of it. He didn't live in a bubble. Officially, the culture lives in a bubble. It's like today in America, in Israel. Officially, the culture lives in a bubble. Really, 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 the kids know a lot more than they admit. And that's the truth. You know what I'm saying? Officially, nobody has a cell phone. Really, 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 they do. You know, and I don't mean the kosher phones. You know, officially, it's like this. As long as you go officially, it's okay. What happens really is a different story. There are pluses that minus, but that's the way it goes. That's what it was in his time, obviously. And so, in one place, he said he saw some terrible scene, reminded him of a poem by Bialik famous Zionist poet. <laughs> so he knew the Zionism stuff also. You can't put that in art school biography. So it's really funny. Somebody as great as he, you know, he's good, he's good enough for, uh, you know, all the great Godola, but not good enough for the art school. It's funny. It reminds me, Abraham Lincoln used to introduce his wife, Mary Todd. She says, this is my wife, Mary Todd. It's T-O-D-D. One D was enough for God, but not for Todd. <laughs> but anyway, whatever the case is, he's wandering Remember, the shoes are falling apart. There's no shoes now. He's wearing rags. You can imagine what feet, what shape he's in. It's a good thing he was a young man in his 20s. You know, when you're a teen and in your 20s, you're invincible, even though this kind of wears you down. And he has all these descriptions of living the life, as we would call it, of a refugee, which is a bummer. And he had better than others, because being a, a, already at his age, a well-known Tamachachim, he had Chaverim. Some live in Lemberg, some live here, some there. They'll let him stay overnight. But I think if I understood this correctly, for maybe months and months and months, you know, he never slept in a bed, and he's always sleeping with the clothes on. Which Americans would say, I'm shooting myself. Can't handle it. Can't handle it. And he conceives the idea, he wants to run away to Vilna to see Rahan Weiser. Figure out what to do to get out of this situation. Um, and that means you have to cross all of Poland. If you know the map a little bit, again, if you want to understand what I'm saying, just Google a map of Europe in 1938, or if you wish, Europe in 1940. And you'll see Poland divided into a Soviet zone and a German zone. And in the German zone, they're already going around killing people in this sadistic, haphazard way, torturing them. In the Stalin zone, it's not like that. It's just the Yiddish guy's being crushed, and you live under the terrorist of communism, that the NKVD can come ar- arrest you at any time and send you off to play with the polar bears forever. And so, you got to make your way across Poland, the Soviet zone this far to finally get all to the north. But then, you have the following problem. It's very interesting. Listen closely. Maybe you notice, some of you I'm sure notice, many of you do not. The, the Vilna district. Vilna's a big city. Long ago, long, long ago, it used to be the great kingdom of Poland, which really was the United States of Poland and Lithuania. That's really what it was. It was the the, the Commonwealth of Rzeczpospolita, as they called it, the Noble Republic of Poland-Lithuania. So, there were two zones, 
but they're two countries connected in one fashion or another. So <clears throat> there are a lot of Poles living in Lithuania, vice versa. <clears throat> and since it was all one big territory, there's no question about borders, so it's all one big country. The same way that New York and Chicago is in the same country. And even when the Russian czars took it over, so it was all subsumed in one big empire called Russia. But when the First World War ended, uh, a lot of these little peoples wanted to become independent. And today they are. They want to have their own country. So if you Google a map of Eastern Europe today, you'll see there's a whole bunch of little countries over there, some not so small. So you have Lithuania and Latvia, Estonia, for the first time became countries. Lithuania is the name of one country, Latvia is the name of another country, Estonia is the name of a third country. And they have Belarus, which never was an independent country, for, I don't know, maybe never. But now is, <clears throat> it's not small. I was here. And then they have Ukraine, as we all know, because of the war with Putin and Zelensky. And that never was a country of its own, but it is now. So some of these countries were able to <clears throat> win their independence and some were not. <clears throat> in the period I'm talking about, which is after the First World War, the Ukrainians and the Belarusians were stomped on by the Soviets and the Poles, and they never got their own country. But Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia did. Three separate countries. But they had border disputes. And it really had to do with the fact that this little country called the Republic of Lithuania, which once upon a time was gigantic and ruled other people, now they said, we don't want to do that. We just have an all-Lithuanian country of our own, even if it's not big. This Republic of Lithuania wanted Vilna to be their capital. Vilnius, they call it. Because historically, it was a Lithuanian capital. The Poles didn't see it that way. They said it was really a Polish capital. And as I said, this chalet called the city of Vilna and the district around it was seized by the Poles around 1920. The Lithuanians couldn't do anything about it because Poland is a much bigger country than Lithuania. It's just that the Lithuanians protested and they screamed about it all the time. They couldn't do anything about it. Now, in 1939, when Stalin and Hitler made a deal and they divided everything among them, so that means Stalin gets the uh, Vilna part as part of his one-third, because I told you it was part of Poland. And Stalin, very sneaky, said to Lithuania, I know you've been wanting this all the time. I'll give you a present, Vilna. So the Soviet army took it over and then gave it to Lithuania. And the Lithuanian army moved in and took it over and added it to Lithuania. Now, Stalin really was planning to sooner or later take over the whole thing. And the Lithuanians kind of knew it. But meanwhile, 1939, and for until the middle of 1940, it was part of a separate and free country called Republic of Lithuania, which means it's a um, neutral country and safe for the Jews. So anybody who was able to wanted to sneak away from Poland where either you fall in the hands of Hitler or else you fall in the hands of Stalin. If you go to Lithuania, to Vilna now, because the border has been moved closer to you, once again, in, in Vilna, you're like in a free country. I mean, Lithuanians might give you a little trouble, but that's nothing compared to the police states that you found under Hitler and Stalin. Nothing compared to that. Unless we had an influential Jewish community. And it means that those who are interested in the history of Chaim Meiser will understand that from 1920 to 1939, he was in a country called Poland. He had to kiss up to the Poles. In October of 1939, all of a sudden he found himself under Lithuania again. And all the yeshivas who were able to, who could flee, did so. Because they didn't want to be under Stalin, and they sure as heck didn't want to be under Hitler. And so they were all located not far from Vilna. So I'm talking about yeshivas like Mir and Kamenetz, Baranovich and so forth. Those yeshivas. So they're Litvish yeshivas, and they were in a territory that was Litvish, but it was politically in the Republic of Poland. Now, for a short time, finds itself you know, in, in, in a restored Republic of Lithuania. I hope I made that clear. It's a little confusing to people. Anyhow, uh, all I can say is that our hero has a terrible time trying to sneak over the border. Many 
you see over there, he writes very brilliantly. You see that the parents are from and the children are already convinced communists. They'll tell on you. No, the father the Sheikhid, the father's a rabbi, his own son will tell because by Stalin it was a big mitzvah to be a Moser. Like the highest mitzvah. And it's really hard. And nobody has the ability to really give you a lot of food. And all the refugees are starving. And you're lucky if you get a piece of bread for to last you a couple of days. You know, a loaf of bread. He even gave half a loaf to a Polish lady, don't ask. And it is what it is, you know. And you're trying to get over there, and he had no shoes, and that's not funny. You know, try to cross the border, sneak over the border with professional border sneakers um, with no shoes in the winter. It's like terrible. So everywhere he's living in hell. And eventually, he's arrested by the Soviet secret police a couple times, but they let him go. He's a small fry. I know how it works with Stalin. Meanwhile, they let you go. Eventually, they round you up and kill everybody. That's what, you know, today they let you go, tomorrow they let you go. Next week they get you. That's actually what happened in the end. Whatever the case was, somehow or other he eventually was able to cross the border. All these harrowing experiences. And this is, and he wants to see behind Moser, who I think he knew, because I read somewhere that he had smicha from the Marcheshes, who was behind Moser's dying, you know, you know, 10 years before the war or something like that. So, you know, remember, they all been part of Poland once upon a time. And he gets, he crossed the border of Lithuania. That's where it came very interesting to me, because like I said, my father lived there, and uh, my father died when I was fairly young. And so, you know, I know what I know, but it's always very fascinating to me, especially somebody writing in 1944, and he's seeing what's happening over there, the Lithuanian Jews, and what he said accords with what my father told me. And... Uh, and to him, you know, he doesn't know Lithuania. He heard now, first of all, it's a free country. You see people going to Shul. <laughs> you see young, young people learning in Shul. He hadn't seen this. This couldn't exist under Hitler, couldn't exist under Stalin for different reasons. So now he feels like he came back to Yerushalayim, so to speak. And he crosses into a little town. Maybe it was Aishishak or something. And a poor guy comes over to him as he puts it over here. Now he runs across the Litvaks. And he came and sat down on the shoal, and a Jew, short and stocky, with darting eyes, addressed me, whispered in my ear, I should not humiliate him, but please come home with him for breakfast. <laughs> it's a refugee, take him home for breakfast, because he's a Tamil Chacham. Now, he hadn't eaten, not really, for months. You understand? Here's a guy offering breakfast, and he comes home, and you want to know something? It's, and he says, he's a poor guy, a happy couple, Man of the people, meaning an Amcha, not a, not a Talmud Chacham, anything like this. As you and I would say today, a Pasha the Yid, in the best sense of the word. Literally, Yid, best sense of the word. And he says, he tells his wife, Bluma, Baruch Hashem, I've picked up a refugee, prepared a table. This is new to him, because on the other side, people didn't want to share the food, because there wasn't anything to go around. You understand? It's really tough. And he says, she covers the table, and puts out bread and water and salt and a towel and a bowl for washing his hands and butter and honey and cheese and then a herring and sour pickles, tea with sugar. And she says, This is not something to look at. I'm putting it here for you to eat. <laughs> you see? Now, the poor person is actually a better uh, This is always famous in Europe by the Shiva guys. They'd rather eat by a poor family than by a rich family. Because the rich families, very often, she's counting how much you're eating. You understand? It bothers her. You know, you're taking too much. The poor family has simple food, and what we have is yours. And many times you find in the memoirs of the Yeshiva guys, they'd rather go to a poor family that has a little bit of food, but they're perfectly willing to share everything. Make a little bit more kasha, as they say, you know? Big deal. And ask is unto hate. And... And what he got, he eats it all, they look with pleasure. It's just very interesting. So he eventually gets to see Rechaim Moser, you know, and this is a year before he died, before Rechaim Moser died. And he's handling with his secretary. And his secretary was the father of my friend Elias Rabinowitz, Rabbi Rabinowitz, who used to be in there as well. He was Rechaim Moser's secretary at that time, ended up in Baltimore, a good friend of my father's. And make a long story short, all the yeshivas are there. 
whoever escaped. And he says, Reb Chaim Mari said, we want to start up the Chachmi Leblin Yeshiva. A very small number of guys came, survived, got out. But um, we want to start up now in Vilna, Lithuania. It'll be a Chassidish Yeshiva, but a pity for it to go down the drain. So that means we'll have to recruit from people here for this yeshiva. Reb Chaim says, I think it's a good idea. And I will support you. And I'll write you a letter. Him and two other guys. I'll write you a letter. You can go on a fundraising campaign around Lithuania. Raise some money and start the yeshiva. Because if Chaim Meiser writes the letter, that'll take that'll open all the doors. And he did. <clears throat> now, this is where it gets interesting to me, myself and I. And he says to one of the guys, you go to Kovna. And he raised the money there. And he tells our hero, Rabbi Hirschman, you go to Shavu. And raise the money here because they got money there also. My father was there at Chavo. In fact, he was a wealthy guy, so he was one of the people who <laughs> must have been involved. And it becomes very interesting that this Galician, as he puts himself, has to come and he says he feels uncomfortable because and he still doesn't have shoes. And he's, you know, the poor guy, by the way, gave him galoshes. He said, I don't have shoes, I don't have. And he can't get shoes in this town. I'll give him my rubber boots. So he doesn't have shoes, he has rags on his feet with rubber boots over it. This is how you live. You understand? You have to read the book yourself to see it. And anyway, he says that, you know, he goes to so he goes to Shavel, which caught my attention. And uh, I want to read this. It's very interesting to me. He said, and he doesn't know the Litvox. You understand? Now this is so true. My father told me, I remember some things that the Jews in Lithuania lived like isolated life and vice versa. They didn't know Polish Jews. And they didn't know what Hasidim were. They didn't know. The average person. And when my father told me, when the refugees came over the border running away from the war, the Jews in Shavu and other places formed committees to help deplete them, the, the refugees. And they brought them food and this and that and the other, uh, which they needed desperately. But they looked at them they said, Vice is all you know, Jews with, with wearing high socks and the Hasidic garb. They didn't understand what it is. It looked weird to them. And they didn't know if they knew how to make a bracha to Mosi. So they would bring them water. They say, You make a natil, it's a dime. And then now you, is when you do something called Hamosi, Hamosi Lechem in Arts. And these Polish Jews are looking like, what, You think we don't know that? It was, I'm telling you, people have no idea how isolated it was, one from the other. And this story bears it out. And I. Want to share it with you because it's the part that caught my attention, um, and I want to read you two pages or so because I think it's a very uh, charming and remarkable story. And he says, "This is Rabbi Hirschberg, uh The journey to Shavuot caused me considerable anxiety. Until then, he says, I never stepped down in public. I feared that my tattered appearance and my Galicianer accent would prevent my undertaking from being crowned with success." Does they wouldn't understand what I'm saying. Moody Chato, you know. I also doubted whether Lithuanian Jews would respond with enthusiasm for the benefit of a Hasidic yeshiva. But I turned out to be wrong on all accounts. The Lithuanian Jews fulfilled the injunction for Haftam and Zagir in the fullest extent. In Lithuania, everybody lived and breathed the Torah. Now that's not true, but at least the Jews he came across did. Plenty did, but plenty didn't. Hence, it was not necessary to make the case for Talmud Torah the love for Torah was a natural, innate feeling, and my success in Shabbos surpassed my expectations. As soon as I got off the train, I was lucky enough that a Jew came over to me. The Shabbos greeted me warmly, never met me. I asked him to show me where the Rav lived. He said, come, I'll take you myself. And he asked me to give him my satchel, I carry my bag for me. I didn't want to do this. But this Jew, a very gracious and elegantly dressed man, so you see, usually... An elegantly dressed man looks at a hobo because he looked like a hobo. It was all tattered and torn from refugee. But not not over there, not in Lithuania. He became insistent that I do him a personal favor and let him carry my satchel. I found this strange and I said, why should I bother you? And he said, why are you preventing me from doing a mitzvah? Allow me to be Meshavah Shatam How do you know I'm a Tamachacham? I can tell. He said. But I can't do it. I'm not comfortable with having you minister to me. Why not? Because I learned from my rabbi, the great Rabbi Meir Shapiro. What does that mean? My rabbi, Zechusi Yoganolino, did not want anyone to administer to him, Meir Shapiro. He used to say, either way, 
if I, were I not a Torah scholar, there would be no one to serve. And since I am, I myself want to fulfill the myths of ministering to myself. He said, that's his shtick. You know, I don't want anybody to mishamish me. If I'm talking to Amichochem, let me carry my own bags, Ramir Shabir used to say, so I can be mishamish myself. The Jew looked at me and said like this, you already told you a joke and you're taking it literally? What's wrong with you? <laughs> if what he said was correct, the whole mitzvah, mishamish told me Chacham would be impossible. And therefore, it's end of his earlier chaser. So no, it's, it's a litvish logic, you understand? <laughs> it's a pleasure for me to serve you. I'm not causing you any damage. So why are you so stubborn and act like the people of Sodom? Because in Sodom, you know, they were against Zen and Zelo Chosim. They were against anybody having a no. Embarrassed, they gave him my bag and he led me to the Rav. The Rabbi in Shavu was a boxed, a famous Ariel boxed. Uh, I'll tell you again, that's where my father lived. The Rabbi, the rabbi welcomed me with the Rav, with superabundant love. I had a conversation about the purpose of my visit, and he congratulated me with the Hachikoach, and he promised his assistance. I stayed at his house. For lunch, the Jew who was Meshamish me had accompanied me from the station to the house and he gave me a note of 100 litta, which is 20 bucks in American money. And at that time, 20 bucks over there was a lot of money. That's his first contribution. In addition, this Jew ran all over town announcing the purpose of my visit with the result that the Jew hurried from all directions to the rabbi's house to welcome me. You know, I don't know who the guy was. I would like to think it's my dad, but I have no idea. For the first time in my life, I had the opportunity to witness the tremendous devotion of Lithuanian Jews to Talmud Torah. My eyes welled up with tears of joy, and it took all my strength to hold back my tears. My work had already been done for me. I didn't have to speak much or make an appeal whatsoever. After saying a few words, they understood me at once. They said, You're not going to give a speech. You're here to raise money for Torah. We're going to kick in money. They immediately held a meeting at the house, and they formed a committee, went over town collecting the money. Within a few short hours, another committee formed outside the house came with me with a request. Now listen to this. And this is beginning in 1940. In view of the fact that there's a whole abundance of yeshivas, and here in Shavu we don't have even a single yeshiva, as a matter of fairness, start the Chachmi Lublin yeshiva here in Shavu. I explained to them that Vilna had Chaim Meiser and the body yeshivas, and it was better over there, and they said, okay, listen, but you, I want you to know, if you're here... We can fund the whole thing. There's enough money in town. Thank God was in a position to sustain, sustain Yeshiva for some. Now comes the funny part. I decided, to, Rabbi Hirschman writes, I decided to dampen the desire of the Jews for Yeshiva and Shavu, so I dropped a bombshell. I revealed to them that Chachmi, Levin, Chachmi Lublin is a Hasidic Yeshiva. I was certain they would be disappointed, give me the money they raised, and then very respectfully send me packing. It turned out that these Jews had not the vaguest idea about Hasidism. It's exactly what I told you. It's my father told me. They know what Hasidism They began bombarding me with questions. What is a Hasidic yeshiva? Before I could open my mouth to explain the concept of Hasidism, someone in the group shouted, a Hasidic yeshiva means the yeshiva of the Ger Rebbe. Another guy said, well, what's a yeshiva of the Ger Rebbe? Oh, they do a lot of singing and dancing with gestures and grimaces. Others, they spend all day long. Dancing. <laughs> this is what they thought. A third guy said, how do you know that? I heard that from the Munchen Terebi. You know, he sings beautifully. He sings better than the Gare Rebbe. And so they immediately agreed. So they had no idea what's going on. But it didn't matter. They unanimously agreed to a Hasidic Yeshiva. And then they attacked me, saying, each one saying, come eat at my house. I said, I can't eat at everybody's house. And the rabbi said, the rabbi said, whoever collects the most money, that's where he'll eat and sleep. And the group dispersed only the guy who accompanied the station. Uh, only the Guru's home station remained. He insisted I eat and sleep at his house, and the yeshiva should definitely move from uh, um, Vilna to Shavu, and he undertook to provide two yeshiva bachim with room and board. No, he put his money where his mouth is. If you start a yeshiva here, I'll cover two guys. Right? I can cover two guys. See, old system of caste. That night, I slept in the home of this Jew because he advised me at a claim on me because he met me first and donated the first money. The next day, I rode back to Vilna with the money and clothing. I actually had a new pair of shoes because he saw his, his feet, obviously, and deep respect and esteem for these Jews of Shavu, who embodied all the good qualities of Hasidism without even knowing what it is. Before leaving the town, I explained that as far as emigration is concerned, it's better to have be in Vilna than in Shavu, so they agree with me. Isn't that a remarkable story? So notice that what is what is Hasidism? You know what, what does he mean by that? 
Now, if you want to get technical, and he's of course not being technical, he means Chasidis, what you and I would call Yiddishkeit from the from the kishkes, from the stomach. You know, and that's it's a wonderful it's a wonderful description. At least I thought it is, and I'm sure. If they invited all the businessmen and the rich guys in town, I'm sure my father was there also. That's why it, it just uh, struck me as a thing, you know, something very interesting, very moving, at least to me. And, you know, I'm looking at somebody sent me the other day for, on, on Academia, an article by Professor Benny Brown. And it's very technical, meaning from an intellectual, academic, professorial point of view, you know, how would you describe Hasidis? Because the Hasidic movement started with the Baal Shemta, but pretty soon it you know, proliferated. So the Hasidim were all different, this one and that one and that one, and they developed different emphases. And he classified it, I just found this fascinating, the 13 drachim, I will call it, and he calls it the following, I'll just share it with you. Number one, wonders and material tzaddikism, Nozarebi is a Balmaifis, that's Lezhensk, Lublin, Vishnitz, and many others. Number two, learning the doctrine of Hasidus or Kabbalah. That's the intellectual idea of Chabad and differently of Zidichov. Number three, the struggle against <coughs> um, hindrances, which is the existential idea of Breslov. Number four, Talmudic acumen, you know, Shas, the ideal of the Yid of Shizcha, the Chidush Rim, Reptzadik of Lublin, and others. Number five, Halachic meticulousness and strictness. Medactic Mimitzis, known as the following the commandments, the nomocentric ideal of Rubschitz, Dinov, and Sanz. Number six, anti modernist zealotry, the radical religious ideal of the Hungarian Hasidism. Number seven, understanding uh, in, introspection, truth, and personal responsibility as uh, the existential ideal of Rabunim of Shiska. Number eight, a constant doubt and amor fati, right? Uh, the quasi-quietistic uh, ideal of Ishbitsa, right? Um, the love of fate, in other words. Uh, you know, whatever it's supposed to be. Number nine, holiness and the suppression of the body, the ascetic ideal of Kobrin, Kotsk, and their successors. Number ten, wealth, splendor, and royalty, the bourgeois ideal of Ruzhin, the Ruzhinerts. Number eleven, Amuna and the drawing of the light, the tempered experiential ideal of the Svasemes. Number 12, self-engulfment, engulfment, self-engulfment into the entirety of the Jewish nation. The, that's Alexander, Hasidism. And number 13, political activism, the down-to-earth ideal of the Imri Emes and Gerb. Now, it's, 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 I hope you agree, it's a very interesting typology. Now, of course, what he means is each group or set of groups developed their own. That's not what he's talking about here, Rabbi Hirschbrunn. He's talking about the Yiddish Yid, you know, a Jewish heart. A Jewish heart. You just love Torah. You want to help. You're a big Baltzadaka. You cut a check. And, you know, not, not, nothing to talk about. We have people like this. It doesn't matter who you are. You know? And so, the very sad tragedy, of course, is... I didn't get too far past it, but I didn't finish the book. It's almost at the end. It's what's sad. And, by the way, he writes this in 1944, when he wrote this memoir in 1944 in Canada. Um... Within a short time, they're all dead. You know, saying, what happened to all this stuff? I mean, Hitler came in, uh, Stalin took over Lithuania and the whole area in June of 40. And Hitler came in June 41, and, and that's the Holocaust of bullets. They shot everybody. I mean, in Shaul, there was a ghetto. Like I say, my father was there. They worked most of them to death. You know, like that. But the whole, the, that whole Yiddishkeit is uh, destroyed. You know what I'm saying? Um... And what we've rebuilt in America and Israel is, is good, but it's, it's not the same. It's a little bit different. You understand? Although, you do see here and there uh, these virtues. You do. And and uh, what's really funny is there are different shvatim, the Hasidic, the Litvaks, all the rest. They didn't recognize each other. They didn't know each other. Look what the guy says. He said, what's a Hasidic? She what is a Hasid anyway? Oh, they dance. and learn. So They didn't know. Uh, it's remarkable. Now, Hitler made them all know. Uh, and of course, Hirschsprung eventually was able to get out through, you know, Sugihara and the Japanese and all the rest of it. But um, as a human document, uh, it's very good. And as I said before, it's a little too honest for the art scroll and everything, you know, the details. But if you want to read something that's really, 
accurate as a description of these crazy times. And uh, this, uh, the great tragedy, along with the great nobility, there's a very interesting book you can get online. It's called The Veil of Tears by Rabbi Hirschsprung. He passed away about 20, 25 years ago. You know, somebody, um, children, grandchildren, whoever it is, must have arranged to get this translated. It's published by the Azrieli Foundation, whatever that is. It's some Holocaust thing. And uh, it's very interesting because we don't have, as far as I'm aware, too many full descriptions and honest descriptions, not just typological ones or hagiographic ones or stylized ones, uh, but real, in which a person shares his own issues and doubts and all this kind of stuff, you know, uh, challenges in life when you're living in what they call a veil of tears, emikabocha, or a hell. It's a hell. No one should ever have to go through that, but it's, it's, uh, it's, I found it very moving, which is the reason I'm sharing it with you, especially the part that I just read to you. Somebody else might find a different part. And anyway, I wanted to just do that. Once again, I want to thank Morris Friedman um, and say, hope that this is a uh, tribute for Elias Neshama, for Rabbi Mandelbaum. As I said before, I never knew Rabbi Mandelbaum's family. They're not in Baltimore. I knew his father-in-law, mother-in-law, very close friends of my family, the Henry P. Cohn and Charlotte. And they made my Sheva brachas and a lot more than that. So they're very fine people. And with that, I wish you all a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.